Blighty Thank God is based on the diary our family discovered my late father, Ron Chapman, wrote in 1943 when he was a young RAF pilot serving in the Middle East and Italy. In this grave hour... I'm Neil Chapman and a former journalist. The podcast highlights the stories I uncovered when I researched his diary, along with other historical sources. After my father died in 1980, a representative from the veterans organisation, the Royal Air Force Association, visited my mother. He asked to see my father's logbook. It's an official document detailing all the flights my father took as a pilot. Bare information such as dates, plane types, locations and flight duration. From it, the representative divined elements of my father's RAF war service. Revealing to us that he took part in special operations to drop supplies to Yugoslav and Greek civilian partisans fighting the Germans. Something we were completely unaware of. I'd never seen the logbook. And when I did, how he knew those details from such sparse information was a mystery. There must be other sources. It took a few decades before I unlocked the story and the part my father played in those secret operations that started in November 1943. officially joined 267 Squadron in Cairo, Egypt, on November the 15th, 1943, as they were preparing to leave for Bari, Italy. The news was delivered with a style only the military could employ, as grandson Nick describes. Sunday the 14th of November. Went to 216 Group. Got my balls chewed off to begin with, then posted to 267 Squadron. Go tomorrow. This episode is about a series of secret special operations 267 Squadron undertook from Bari, two of which my father was part of. They involved supply drops to resistance fighters, spiriting away spies, prisoners and special forces, as well as smuggling parts of the deadly V-2 rocket back to Britain, all from deep behind enemy lines. After service in North Africa, towards the end of 1943, 267 Squadron was relocating from Cairo to Bari, a port in southern Italy, and what would become a major hub for both British and American Air Force units. Only recently, the squadron converted to flying C-47 Dakotas. The extra range of these twin-engined aircraft, their rugged ability to land and take off quickly on very poor ground, allowed the squadron to operate widely around the Mediterranean. At the same time as providing general transport services, 267 Squadron was tasked with supporting resistance fighters in Italy, Greece and the former Yugoslavia. But first my father had to join his new squadron. Not an easy task. It took a 4,000 kilometre journey, crossing desert by bus, by train through mountains and valleys, and lastly arriving in Italy by plane. 
When he finally got to the squadron's base, the weather was awful, accommodation chaotic, and conditions unsanitary. Sunday the 21st of November. It is raining. It is damn cold here now. Rain, thunder, and lightning. Four balloons on fire by lightning. The rain started coming in under the tent walls, a young river. Two of us shifted kit and bedding onto camp beds, then went for picks and shovel. Dug up floor of building where tent is to make a channel round the tent. Went to dinner soaking wet. This is one hell of a wet country. I'd like to find the guy who puts up those come to sunny Italy posters. Shortly after my father joined 267 Squadron, the first of a series of special operations took place. In early December 1943, a Dakota plane flew to a torch-lit site in enemy-occupied territory near Glamosh, that's in Bosnia-Herzegovina, to spirit away staff of Russian-backed Yugoslav resistance leader Marshal Tito, three British officers and a German prisoner. To protect the operation, 12 American P-38 fighters provided air cover and a diversionary attack was organised near the island of Split. The Dakota pilots' orders were to be on the ground no longer than 15 minutes and to keep the engines running. The people swap only took eight and a half minutes before the plane was taking off again. On the back of the successful mission, another one was planned, codenamed Operation Manhole. Again, it involved a 267 Squadron Dakota carrying supplies for Tito's fighters, this time flying in a Russian military mission and to evacuate casualties from occupied Yugoslavia. But in the run-up, the British were taken aback when two Russian aircraft arrived at Bari, unannounced, and outstepped a 24-strong delegation, including two very senior Red Army officers. They wanted to discuss planning details of Operation Manhole. As the RAF operations record reported it, rather diplomatically. Air Commodore Foster led the discussion with the Russian Lieutenant General, and all points of the plan were to the entire satisfaction of everyone. But the Russians were not quite pleased about two points. A. They did not consider that 12 fighters were sufficient escort. And B. The time allowed on the ground was insufficient for their needs. While the British agreed with the changes, weather prevented the mission going ahead. But given the first operation's success, going forward 267 Squadron was ordered to make at least two Dakotas available for special operations as needed mainly dropping supplies behind enemy lines within a 550-mile radius of Bari. Thus, in March 1944, the squadron launched a number of nighttime missions. My father's first special mission began on the evening of March 17th, with a 35-minute flight south from Bari to Brindisi still on the Italian coast, but a few miles closer to the enemy Balkan coast to the east. At an operational briefing from a squadron intelligence officer, the seven crew learned the target and code signals for the mission. Dakota aircraft were unarmed, so orders would be to maintain radio silence and use dead reckoning navigation, working out positions with maps and compass, to avoid enemy detection. With luck, the navigator might also obtain fixes 
from enemy radio stations to pinpoint the plane's course and location. First, two Dakotas, FD-965G and FD-926B, took off from Brindisi. Both planes quickly disappeared into the cold mist, heading northeast towards Albania. On board were Special Forces operatives and 9,000 pounds of supplies. 90 minutes later, my father's plane, FD-593E, took off this time heading east, then southeast towards Greece and deeper into enemy-held territory. On board was a 4,075-pound cargo of 33 packages and 11 bundles. Relatively few clouds would make their trip more hazardous, but a lone plane would mean less engine noise and be harder to see. The clear night made spotting the ground target area easier, and it took 40 minutes to cross the Adriatic Sea before adjusting course to head into northwest Greece. Another hour and a half, and the plane finally arrived over the intended target location, 9,000 feet below. A flashed L by torchlight confirmed they were close, and then a mile southeast, a fire and red flare confirmed their true target. The plane made seven south-north, then north-south runs at over 100 miles per hour, combining a steep 180-degree turn at the end to make their return. Without parachutes, the packages fell away quickly as soon as they were pushed out of the rear cargo doors. In total, the plane was over the target area an interminable 45 minutes. But it was successful, and once the last drop happened, the plane headed for home and safety. Returning to Brindisi took a further two hours, a total of five nerve-stretching hours in the air, much of it over enemy territory. After the successful mission, my father was assigned to two others, with very different results. One was likely called off because of bad weather, but it was only a wasted trip between Bari and Brindisi. The next mission was very different. My father's plane and crew flew deep into enemy-controlled northern Yugoslavia before the mission had to be aborted. After reaching the target area, codenamed Cyanide, they were unable to spot any ground signals, the go-ahead for releasing the cargo. They returned, still with it on board. Once again, they ran the gauntlet of enemy coastal radar stations, there and back, that could have brought fighters down on them or directed flak attacks. Six hours and 20 minutes flying had amounted to very little. Meanwhile, a series of other special missions involving others in 267 Squadron were taking place. These were codenamed Operation Wildhorn 1, 2 and 3 and were key in the Allies defending against Germany's new terror weapons, the V-1 and V-2 rockets. The first Wildhorn operation in April 1944 saw a Dakota fitted with eight long-range tanks fly 1,600 miles for nearly 18 hours over occupied Yugoslavia, Hungary and Czechoslovakia to land for just minutes 
in a beetroot field near Lublin, southeast of the Polish capital, Warsaw. Two Polish special agents were dropped off and five resistance leaders picked up. According to the operational report, the five Polish resistance leaders briefed British officials on events that could, in quotes, affect the final conclusion of this war. When the Germans discovered what had happened, 75 Polish partisans were killed in reprisal. After the mission, the first V-1 flying bombs, Hitler's vengeance weapon, began raining down on London in June 1944. Wildhorn II saw another mission deep into Poland, spiriting away Polish resistance fighters. But the third mission, in July 1944, was the most daring and critical. Polish resistance fighters recovered parts from the Germans' next deadly weapon, the V-2, after it crashed on a test flight. It revealed to the Allies the new guidance system and special fuel propellant that powered and directed what was the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. As a result, the British could jam or redirect the radio-controlled V-2s, preventing some hitting London. By the time of 267's third Wildhorn mission, my father was back in Egypt, training on bomber aircraft. Yet another move for him. His stint with 267 Squadron was one of the longest he had with any unit and probably put him at greater risk of being killed by the enemy than was the case up to that point in the war. But by this stage, 1944, I believe he'd know the enemy wasn't really the biggest risk. Accidents, diseases and sheer bad luck were the everyday dangers he faced along with his colleagues. To find maps, photographs and other material associated with each episode, as well as the complete diary with my research notes, visit the website blightythankgod.co.uk. The diary extracts are read by Ron Chapman's eight grandchildren. He'd be proud of all of them. <laughs>